Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. President Biden wiping away hundreds of billions of dollars in student debt. What it means for everyday Americans and the economy. The results are in from yesterday's primaries. What do they tell us about the future balance of power in Congress? All eyes were on Florida and New York, including one win that Democrats are saying is a sign they'll have the upper hand this fall. Busloads of illegal immigrants arriving in New York City and moving into luxury hotels. But how will the city pay for it? Should citizens be allowed to film police within eight feet? The ACLU and 10 media organizations are suing Arizona over its new law. More aid for Ukraine. President Biden announced today that the U.S. is helping with another $3 billion. That's as Ukraine celebrates its Independence Day. An injured little leaguer, Easton Oliverson, is seen eating, relaxing and walking in recent posts just a week after being put into an induced coma. We'll have a full update. President Biden announces he's canceling $10,000 in student debt for most borrowers. Yet it comes amid soaring inflation and criticism that it'll do more harm than good. NTD's Iris Tao has more. It's about giving people a fair shot. Fulfilling one of his campaign promises, President Biden announces... We will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. That's for Americans making less than $125,000 a year. And low-income students who qualify for Pell Grants will have their debt reduced $20,000. About 43 million Americans have student debt. And the federal student aid website crashes as many look for information after the Wednesday announcement. The plan, meanwhile, is estimated to cost about $300 billion of taxpayer money. And Biden says it's good for the economy. All this means people can start, finally crawl out from under that mountain of debt to finally think about buying a home or starting a family or starting a business. And by the way, when this happens, the whole economy is better off. And while progressives and liberals have urged Biden to go further and cancel an even larger share of student debt, moderates and Republicans have questioned the fairness of such widespread forgiveness and the administration's motivation in pushing for it. The Democrats are trying to buy votes. Congresswoman Virginia Fox tells NTD that she thinks Biden's move is to help Democrats in the midterms. And I think delaying this until now, pretty close to the election, is certainly a political ploy. And while Biden claims there's plenty of deficit reduction to pay for the programs, some economists disagree. All the deficit reduction is going to be wiped out. At the same time, we're probably going to do more to increase inflation from debt cancellation than any inflation reduction from, from the Inflation Reduction Act. Reporting Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. So how did college costs get to the astronomical figures of today? Is it still worth it to go to college? NTD's Phil Zoe has that story. Hannah Maruyama was in the middle of a midterm exam during her freshman year in college when she suddenly had an epiphany. It's like, why am I here? <laughs> so I took the paper and I tossed it in the trash and I left and I never came back. <laughs> that was around eight years ago. Today, Maruyama is working in tech, making six figures without a college degree. I had always suspected that college was not necessary, but then uh, my suspicions were very much confirmed when I received an offer letter that required a four-year degree in computer science, and I didn't have one. College tuition has been increasing at nearly five times the rate of inflation since the 1970s. That's according to my e-learning world. What used to cost only $3,000 for private college tuition back in 1970 now costs over $50,000 in 2021. I've, I have worked with teenagers 17, 18 years old crying because they are worried about how they're going to pay for college. Jennifer Letwith is the founder of Scholar Ready, helping high school students win multiple scholarships so they can reduce their tuition costs. It's a great way for people who don't have much, who aren't born with much, to build a, a worthwhile life. 
So how did college tuition get so expensive in the first place? Stuart Siegel, president of FAFSA Assist, who's helped over 100,000 students apply for financial aid, says there are many reasons. The well, government got involved and made uh, basically uh, unlimited amount of money available to parents to pay for college. Parents seem to be willing to pay just about any amount to keep their promise to their children. They, they say, if you do the work, uh, we'll find a way to pay for it. So is college still worth it? Siegel says that depends on the student. It's considered an investment, but you have to look at the student and how investable are they? I mean, do they, are they really hungry to get an education? Are they going to work hard in school? Are they going to you know, network with other students? Uh, are they going to take advantage of everything? Are they going to meet with their professors? Are they going to go to the career center? I mean, a lot of students just don't do that. They don't go to the career center until fourth year, and these people don't know them. For those skipping college, Maoriyama shares some advice. I think that what people need to understand is that keeping a, a flexible mindset where you're willing to learn what's needed instead of picking something out of the blue, like a college degree, just picking a major and then just getting a college degree and then hoping that when you throw it against the wall, it sticks. Instead, you look at what companies need, you go get that, and then you can make good money in the market. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. And moving on to election news, one of the busiest primary nights for the country wrapped up with some interesting results in Florida and New York. What do these results show about how the balance of power could look in Congress this fall? NTD's Melina Weiskup has the details. Florida voters have a big year ahead. Tuesday, they voted on a number of primary races, including House, Senate and Governor. Current Governor Ron DeSantis will face former Governor Charlie Crist this November. On day one of my administration, I will sign an executive order protecting a woman's right to choose. Christ, now a Democrat congressman, previously served Florida as a Republican until 2011. He then changed his party affiliation shortly after. Governor DeSantis running again this year was uncontested. That because of your energy and enthusiasm, we were able to win school board victories all across the state of Florida. As for the Senate race, Senator Marco Rubio is up for re-election this fall, and he's hopeful he'll pull some Democrat voters to his side of the aisle. I wish this country had two normal political parties so we can debate should the taxes be 18 percent or 19 percent, but that's not what we debate anymore. Rubio told the crowd he was confident of a win in November when he'll face Democrat nominee Val Demings. An America that will come together regardless of who we are. To replace Demings in the House, a young progressive has taken the nomination. Maxwell Frost is a 25-year-old and has the backing from self-described socialist Bernie Sanders. So the, the country is, is deeply polarized. There's no doubt about that. And, and political scientists have argued for this idea of pernicious polarization. As for New York, voters had to decide between two veteran Congress members in District 12. Democrat Congressman Jerry Nadler won by a large margin against his colleague, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. I'm thrilled that we were able to win while remaining committed to our principles of kindness and progressivism. And in New York's 19th district, a big win for Democrats. Pat Ryan is projected to win a special election. Ryan, who's campaigned on reversing abortion restrictions, has defeated Republican Mark Molinaro. And the Democrat congressional campaign chair is calling Ryan's win an earthquake. With the slim margin in Congress, Republicans are historically favored to win. But with Ryan's win last night in New York's Bellwether County, Democrats are taking this as a hint that voters will have their backs this fall. As for how both parties will fare approaching midterms, some political analysts say neither side has an easy campaign to run, owing to the deep polarization. Both parties nationally are in serious trouble. But the Democratic Party has different kinds of problems. Why? Because that left and right can't seem to find any place to go together. There is no center anymore. It's quickly being dissipated. Only a handful of states have primaries to run ahead of the midterms, which are just 11 weeks away. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Georgia police and U.S. Capitol Police are investigating after Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene was swatted at her Georgia home 1 a.m. this morning. Swatting is making a false report in an effort to get police to raid a person's home. Here's the congresswoman on Newsmax earlier today. This is real political terrorism, and this is extremely dangerous, and it's happened to other people, not just me. 
but we cannot allow it to to make us stop in our hard work um, as such as important legislation as the Protect Children's Innocence Act. According to police, they responded to a 911 call claiming that someone was shot at the Congresswoman's Georgia home. Green says she was sound asleep when she was woken up by her doorbell ringing. She didn't grab her gun when she answered the door and says she's scared to imagine what could have happened if she did. A second call from the suspect using a computer-generated voice said he or she was upset about Green's position on transgender issues. Last week, Green introduced a bill to outlaw procedures related to gender transition for minors, or what she refers to as child abuse. The congresswoman said this political attack won't stop her from carrying on. And turning now to illegal immigration. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has been providing luxury hotel rooms to recent busloads of migrants from Texas. But at what cost to the city? According to a New York Post analysis, it could cost millions. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. For weeks, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been carrying out his plans to send busloads of migrants to New York City. But Mayor Eric Adams has a plan of his own. Illegal immigrants have been sleeping comfortably at some of the city's finest hotels. But according to a New York Post report, by the end of the year, the cost to the city could be pretty steep. The Post estimates a price tag of more than $300 million per year to shelter new illegal immigrants in hotels. Since early August, the city has secured around 5,800 hotel rooms to handle the sudden influx of people. The largest operation is close to 600 rooms at Row NYC Hotel, a 28-floor luxury hotel in the heart of the theater district. That's the same hotel previously used as a homeless shelter in 2021. Records show the city shelled out almost $148 per day in rent for each room. As long as the rent doesn't go up, the Post estimates $312.6 million in new spending added to the city budget. And that doesn't include food and medical care. Where will the money come from? A budget researcher told the Post the city will have to shift funding from other programs. But Councilman Justin Brannon says the city will receive significant funding from the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and they're going to need every penny of it. Monday, officials estimated that more than 6,000 migrants have arrived since May, with as many as 2,000 arriving in August alone. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And two children are dead and a baby is reportedly in critical condition after trying to cross the Rio Grande River in separate attempts on Monday. It comes on the heels of a recent report by the Federation for American Immigration Reform, which says at least 4.9 million people have illegally crossed into the U.S. since President Biden took office. Earlier today, I spoke with retired ICE Special Agent Victor Avila for his assessment of the current situation. Victor Avila, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, a recent report says nearly 5 million illegal immigrants have crossed U.S. borders since President Biden took office, many of whom have disappeared into the U.S. interior. What's your take on these numbers? And that's actually a more accurate number than, than some of the official numbers that have been reported by the Biden administration. You know, they're, they're saying close to 2 million, but actually the five to even maybe six million is probably more uh, an accurate number based on my experience. And also uh, the number of people that are coming in, not just the ones that are detected, uh, the gotaways that are also counted, but the ones that are not counted gotaways uh, are a tremendous amount of people. And that's just uh, in between the ports of entry and also at the ports of entry. So uh, we're definitely in the millions at this point in uh, less than two years of this administration. And what effect do you think the border crisis will have on the midterm elections? Well, it's definitely going to have one. People are realizing now how uh, illegal immigration and border security is a, uh, uh, a much bigger problem and issue surrounding not just the border states, but every state in our country. And that is uh, impacting the criminal justice system, our school systems, our healthcare systems. And I think people are going to go out and vote accordingly to how they're being effective in their local communities and neighborhoods um, where they're being placed second or last 
next to illegal aliens coming into this country, completely undocumented, and uh, these communities are putting them first in many occasions. Speaking of which, we have a sanctuary city, New York City, has had an influx of illegal immigrants, courtesy of Texas. And the city's reportedly giving some of those people free phones, free food, and school supplies, and says it will enroll many of them in the city's schools. Some say that that's the most compassionate thing to do. What do you think? The most compassionate thing to do is to control our borders and secure them because the, the, the reports that you're not seeing a lot in the mainstream media is the horrific deaths that are being encountered at the border every single day. And I'm talking about drownings, people suffocating the back of tractor trailers, illegal aliens committing suicide and hanging themselves by trees, uh, the women and children being raped and trafficked into this country. You don't hear about that in these sanctuary cities. And all of a sudden, some of these sanctuaries, like you mentioned, New York, is now complaining about taking these individuals into the communities. They don't like that when it hits their backyard. But that's the impact that these millions of people coming in from over 150 different countries has had on uh, not just the border states, like I mentioned, but every other state. And uh, I've been down there to the border myself and interviewed these individuals. They're going to every corner of our communities and now they're being impacted and now they seem to want to blame somebody other than the president of the, uh, of the of the united states when i know they're coming from texas but that's just the only place one of the places that they're entering let's not forget arizona new mexico and california as well now you experienced a deadly run-in with a mexican cartel while you were working for ice could you tell us more about that yeah, absolutely. In 2011, on February 15th, Special Agent Jaime Zapata and I were ambushed by Losetas cartel as we were traveling on Highway 57, which is the main corridor from Mexico City up to Texas. We were sent on a dubious assignment, uh, never should have happened, and it ended in tragedy as we were ambushed and shot at over 100 rounds by about eight armed individuals. Uh, tragically, Special Agent Jaime Zapata lost his life in the line of duty. I miraculously survived by the grace of God being shot three times. And so uh, I know firsthand the evil that we face and threat that we continue to face from the cartels, from the corruption, from the fentanyl, from the, the drugs and the human smuggling and trafficking in our country. And I'm trying to be a voice and advocate for border security and how that actually would be uh, a humanitarian cause and actually save lives. And could you break this, that down a little for us? What dangers do these cartels pose to the U.S. and in particular to border towns? Well, let, let's start with the violence. Um, in Mexico, just the last week and a half has been a very, very, very big uptick in violence. Uh, they've killed over 15 journalists in Mexico. Uh, it's the most dangerous city for a, a dangerous country for a journalist to work in, not the Middle East, but right here next to us in Mexico. And the, the politicians are corrupt, the police at every level is corrupt, and that impacts us, not just in the border states, but everywhere else because the cartels that control that country right now of Mexico are in our country as well, bringing in and distributing the fentanyl and the over 110,000 deaths attributed to the, those poisonings, the methamphetamine, which causes a lot of crime uh, and throughout our communities. I talked to a lot of police departments and uh, around the country, and they have a big, big issue with meth and the addiction, as well in Mexico and crystal meth and, and all those issues, the human smuggling, the human trafficking uh, issues. My subject matter expertise is human trafficking, and I uh, rescued many women and children from these horrific conditions and these open border policies under this administration continues to flew those, uh, fuel those illicit activities. So what do you think should be done to address the border crisis? Well, it's, uh, it's actually not that complicated as most, most people think it is. It's a big picture here of national security and public safety, but it comes down to policy, uh, the policies that have been implemented. And right now, um, it's just the lack of. There's no policies. It's lawlessness down at the border. There's no enforcement of any of our existing laws, legislatively passed laws, immigration laws, and other laws that are completely being ignored. People are, are allowed to walk into this country and disrespect our constitution, our sovereignty, um, and that needs to stop. And maybe that's the, the way we take care of it is at the voting polls. All right, Victor Avila, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. 
Now, should citizens be able to film police within eight feet? Well, the ACLU and 10 media organizations are suing Arizona over their new law prohibiting exactly that. They say it's unconstitutional. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. In July, Arizona Governor Greg Ducey signed a bill into law that makes it a crime for someone to film a police officer within eight feet if they have been warned to stop. Now the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, and 10 media organizations are suing Arizona officials over the law, saying it violates the First Amendment. The legal director of the ACLU had this to say. At a time when the public is demanding police accountability, Arizona wants to criminalize the public's most effective tool for shining a light on police violence. Bystander footage of police played a major role in notable cases, such as those of Rodney King and George Floyd, and most recently in Arkansas, where two officers were seen punching and kneeing a suspect on the ground before arresting him. Most footage that we see is further than eight feet away anyway. Jim Fuda, a retired police sergeant of 33 years, says he doesn't think the Arizona law is taking away anyone's rights, and he added this. If an officer has to turn his attention away from doing his lawful duty and, and uh, uh, put his attention on a person, that's obstructing justice. That's, a, that's, that's an obstruction, at least in my state. So, um, you know, there, there's an, another factor there, too. I, I just don't think someone needs to put a camera in, in, right in someone's face at, at one foot. Some exceptions to Arizona's law allow passengers to record video during traffic stops, and whoever the police are addressing can also film, as long as it doesn't interfere with police actions. Arizona Sheriff Paul Pinzone, who is named as a defendant in the lawsuit, said this. To include me in a lawsuit for which I had no involvement in crafting, vetting, or passing is an example of targeting a law enforcement leader for the sake of sensationalization. Jason Perry, NTD News. And over in California, the state is expected to ban the sale of new gasoline cars after 2035. The California Air Resources Board will vote on the measure tomorrow and it is expected to pass. If it does, it would be the first ban of its kind anywhere in the world. Analysts say this would be a groundbreaking move that accelerates the transition to electric vehicles. And the University of Texas might officially become the richest school in the world. The latest numbers aren't out yet, but it is likely to happen also. This position is currently held by Harvard. And TD's Colin Fredrickson breaks down why it's likely to happen. The University of Texas is currently the second richest institution of higher learning. Its endowment fund market value of $42.9 billion puts it right behind Harvard, but it may not remain in second place for long because of the 2.1 million acres of land it oversees in the Permian Basin. The school leases the land, which is almost the size of Hawaii, to oil drillers. And because of high oil prices, the University of Texas is likely to become richer than Harvard. $6 million a day is how much the University of Texas is benefiting. Jason Isaac is the director of the Life Powered Initiative at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Its goal is to teach America about energy. After doing the math, Life Powered found that if the university got rid of the land, they'd have to find the revenues somewhere else. Right now, students pay about an annual eleven dollars to $12,000 in tuition. And if they were to completely divest of fossil fuels, every single student's tuition would be required to go up to over $70,000 per year. In 2021, the university reported it produced around 284,000 barrels of oil a day. For context, the U.S. needs around 20 million a day, and the world needs around 100 million barrels. It's uh, clearly a huge boon to the University of Texas and its efforts to be a world-class university. But we have to ask, you know, at what cost? Luke Metzger is the executive director of Environment Texas, an advocacy group. He points to the greenhouse emissions from the energy operations. Metzger believes we need to transition to renewable energy sources. Is it like turning a dial, not flipping a switch? We're not going to just stop using this oil. UT is not going to stop getting this revenue overnight but certainly in the next few decades. Metzger says pressure from governments and scientists could soon force everyone off of fossil fuels. Not everyone agrees. I see centuries of demand for the oil and gas industry. We're not talking decades. I know that the 
the environmentalists, the climate cult, the leftists really want to see this energy transition happen right now. Jason Isaac from the Texas Public Policy Foundation says a quick transition is impossible. We're not going to meet demand. Uh, we're certainly not going to shift that demand. We're, go we're, we're shifting production, unfortunately, to overseas, uh, only producing about 15 million barrels a day in the United States of our 20 million barrels a day of demand. Uh, so that, that oil is coming from someplace else. The University of Texas's gains come as other schools, including Harvard, are getting rid of or have already gotten rid of their fossil fuel-related investments. The University of Texas's annual report, which contains its 2022 endowment numbers, is likely to be released this December. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And turning to Ukraine, where the country's president says Russian forces launched a rocket attack on a train station and killed at least 22 people today on Ukraine's Independence Day. The attack took place in a small town in central Ukraine. About 50 people are reportedly wounded. And in honor of Ukraine's Independence Day today, the Biden administration is giving $3 billion in aid to the country. Here are the details. Wednesday, August 24th marks Ukraine's independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. It's also exactly six months since Russia invaded the country. Hulks of burnt-out Russian tanks and armored vehicles have been laid out like war trophies in Kiev. The Biden administration is using the day to issue a statement allocating $3 billion in aid to Ukraine, saying today and every day we stand with the Ukrainian people. Biden says the $3 million would enable Ukraine to buy various military equipment. The money is being drawn from aid packages that Congress already approved, including a $40 billion package that Biden signed in May. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky expressed his gratitude for another security assistance package. With all due respect to every other country in the world, but the United States has given Ukraine the biggest amount of aid, both economically and in terms of political influence. Also on Wednesday, Reuters released a poll saying a slim majority of Americans agree that the U.S. should continue to support Ukraine. According to the poll, 53 percent expressed support for backing Ukraine until all Russian forces leave. Only 18 percent said they are opposed. Democratic voters were more supportive, with 66 percent of Democrats in support compared to only 51 percent of Republicans. Republican Congressman Warren Davis commented on the aid, saying, We all agree Putin unjustly invaded Ukraine. Most everyone on the planet is rooting for peace for Ukraine to defend their country. Nevertheless, the America last people seem hell-bent on Americans footing the bill until they find a way to drag us into another war. Democrat Senator Jean Shaheen supports the new aid, saying amid Russia's escalating strikes against Ukrainian civilians, investing in a long-term defense posture to protect Ukraine's people and sovereignty is critical. Besides the U.S., Germany and Canada also pledged financial aid to Ukraine this week. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up... A small town in New Mexico is having a water crisis. The city only has a few weeks left of drinking water. So how did it get to this point? An injured little leaguer, Easton Oliverson, is seen eating, relaxing, and walking in recent posts just a week after being put into an induced coma. NTD's Dave Martin has the latest. That and more coming up. Now over to New Mexico. A college town by the name of Las Vegas is having a water crisis. The town has less than 30 days of drinking water left. We are looking at um, only about a few weeks of, of water supply left. The clock is ticking on the water supply for Las Vegas, New Mexico, a college town and economic hub for ranchers and farmers. Just months earlier, a wildfire raged near the town and its surrounding mountain villages. Due to unprecedented 1,200-year drought, combination of high winds, extreme dryness, and a winter where there was not very much snow, uh, big piles of wood that had been burned to try to clear the debris from the clearing project um, actually reignited into a fire, which uh, is unique. Uh, 
doesn't really happen very much. The city is having one of the best monsoon seasons it's ever had, but people there can't capture any of the water because of the fire. Now the city must figure out a way to survive before the water supply runs out. Authorities there have imposed higher stages of conservation and are looking for help from elsewhere. We've identified a, a system that does pretreatment to water. Um, we're implementing that in the next few weeks. Uh, it's coming from out of state. It's on, its, uh, it's on the highway right now on the way down to Las Vegas uh, to pretreat some of the contaminated water that we have in one of our lakes, which will add to the storage or add to the supply of the city of Las Vegas. The city manager says this will put a band-aid on the situation for now, but the city still needs to get cleaner water from the river and fill up its reservoirs in the long run. We want to make sure that we, uh, now that we have all the federal partners at the table, find the monies that we need to uh, rebuild a dam that leaks uh, to, to uh, uh, extend the storage of, of water so that it doesn't put us in this situation in the future. Daniel Patterson, press officer at the U.S. Forest Service, says the top priority right now is restoration work in Guyana's Canyon because it's a supply of drinking water for Las Vegas, New Mexico. The Colorado ski town of Steamboat Springs is part of a wave of vacation towns across the country facing a housing crisis. Now it's grappling with how to regulate short-term rentals. NTD's Andrew Thomas has this story. Short-term rentals have become increasingly popular for second homeowners. They can offset the cost of their vacation homes and turn a profit while away. But some say they have squeezed small towns' limited housing supply and have sent rent skyrocketing for full-time residents. I'm not able to even afford to live in a place where I'm able to have my own kitchen or my own shower or my own outdoor space to grill steaks. The Steamboat Springs City Council passed a ban on new short-term rentals in most of the city and a ballot measure to tax bookings at 9% to fund affordable housing. A coalition of businesses and property owners is opposed to the tax. Robin Cragen is the co-founder of a property management company. He doesn't think short-term rentals are the issue. And we're also seeing a lot of people moving here. Uh, that phenomenon, mountain migration, um, has driven the price of real estate through the roof and beyond the means of many of our um, local residents. The narrative um, that short-term rentals are the reason that we have this problem is completely without basis. A study commissioned by Airbnb found that short-term rentals support more than 13,000 jobs in popular Rocky Mountain counties. It also argued that such rentals have little impact on housing prices. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Hall of Fame quarterback Lynn Dawson passed away yesterday at the age of 87. No cause of death has been given, but the former chief star had been in hospice care since August 12th. Dawson was the MVP of Super Bowl IV after leading the Chiefs to a 23-7 win over the Vikings. The former first-round pick of the Pittsburgh Steelers back in 1957 was a backup for five years in the NFL before catching on with the AFL's Dallas Texans. Dawson starred there while playing under one of his former assistant coaches at Purdue, Hank Stram. They won the AFL title in 1962 before moving to Kansas City and becoming the Chiefs. Dawson led them to another AFL title in 66 before falling to Green Bay in Super Bowl I. The star quarterback stayed with the team until 1975 when he retired after making seven Pro Bowls and being named an All-Pro twice. He's still the franchise's all-time leader in passing yards and touchdowns. In retirement, Dawson spent more than three decades as part of the Chiefs' radio broadcast team. He also was on HBO's Inside the NFL for 24 seasons. And in Little League World Series baseball news, the 12-year-old who fell out of his bunk at the Williamport Complex and severely injured his head continues to make strides. Easton Oliverson, who was put into an induced coma last week after suffering a fractured skull from his fall, is now seen standing and even relaxing on social media. The family's Instagram account, entitled Miracles for Tank, showed him walking the entire loop of his unit without stopping. 
The family also noted that his feeding tube was taken out and that the swelling around his right eye has subsided to the point where he can actually see out of it. Easton, who was originally going to fly back to a hospital in his home state of Utah Tuesday, is now expected to stay another week in order to undergo a procedure to get his skull cap put back in. He's scheduled to return home on Wednesday, August 31st. And in the professional ranks, San Diego Padres suspended all-star Fernando Tatis Jr. spoke to the media Tuesday and said that he had no excuses for testing positive for performance-enhancing substance. Tatis says the positive test was from a skin medication that contained the banned drug. The 23-year-old led the league with 42 home runs last season and has finished in the top four of the MVP voting each of the past two years. His punishment means that he'll miss the final 48 games of this season and the first 32 of next while forfeiting nearly $3 million in salary. Elsewhere in the majors, Yankees outfielder Aaron Judge homered in his second straight game last night to give him a league-high 48 on the season. The performance helped the team to a two-game sweep of the crosstown rival Mets. It also put Judge's home run projection for the season at right around 61, which is still the AL record held by former Yankee Roger Maris. Should Judge pass it, he would likely be declared the clean record holder. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, the U.S. is tightening its curb on technology exports to China. Authorities discover some exports could be benefiting the Chinese military. And we hear from a leading expert on forced organ harvesting. He says the U.K. needs an effective reporting system to stop people from going to China for organs. That and more after the break. I can't imagine what the affidavit would say to justify a seizure that broad. There was essentially nothing in the, in the body of this very classified document that gave any evidence that Trump was a Russian asset. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. All of these documents I'm taking are declassified. I mean, this is, this is not some bureaucratic process. I don't even know why that was necessary. I think it's just part of the tactics to try to increase pressure on those around President Trump. My colleague, Peter Navarro, is arrested on a misdemeanor by an FBI SWAT team at Reagan Airport. Uh, on January 25th, 2019, uh, 29 fully SWAT-clad FBI agents who arrived in 17 armored vehicles uh, with a government helicopter overhead and two FBI boats pulling up to the dock behind my house. I gather the purpose of this was intimidation. Donald Trump, as a human being, as a man who is now a politician, is not owned by anybody. And that's what makes him very dangerous. He is lethal to the vested interests in this city, left and right. Welcome back. The U.S. is tightening its curb on technology exports to China. Seven Chinese companies, mostly from the aerospace sector, have recently been added to Washington's export blacklist, meaning any exports to these companies will need extra approval from U.S. authorities. Washington added seven more Chinese companies to its export blacklist on Tuesday, citing national security concerns. The Commerce Department said these companies were using U.S. exports in support of China's military modernization efforts. Most of them are state-owned Chinese aerospace entities like China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation and China Academy of Space Technology, among others. Stephen Azell is Vice President of Global Innovation Policy at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, or ITIF. He said the U.S. needs nuanced export control. We certainly should have the ability to sell semiconductors in the Chinese market that are going to things like air conditioners or refrigerators. But 
for technologies that are not globally commercially or militarily available, where U.S. companies do hold the cutting edge in that technology, whether it's in avionics or artificial intelligence or quantum computing, then yeah, we should look very specifically at ensuring those types of technologies uh, can't be sold uh, in China. Azell also pointed out that's not easy because of China's military civil fusion policy known as MCF. The U.S. State Department describes the policy as aggressive. The key part of MCF is to eliminate barriers between China's civilian and military industrial sectors. As a result, every technology owned by private companies can be taken by Chinese military. In order to achieve its goal of global military dominance, the Chinese Communist Party has been accused of stealing and reverse engineering cutting-edge technology from around the world. And aerospace technology is one of Beijing's targets under MCF. Being on the export control list means all U.S. exports to these companies will need extra approval. But recent trade data shows the U.S. Commerce Department approves almost all tech export requests to China. Sales of certain critical technologies to the country have also seen an increase. For the past two decades, the Chinese Communist Party has overseen the killing of prisoners of conscience for their organs. The main victims are practitioners of the spiritual discipline Falun Gong and China's Uyghur population. Some have called this large-scale transplant abuse genocide. In an interview by NTD and the Epic Times, one of the foremost experts on this topic, David Mattis, gives us an update on his work. In China, surgeons have become executioners. Two recent studies provide new evidence on the Chinese Communist Party's illegal organ trade. They identified Chinese medical papers showing that physicians had carved out organs from people for transplant without first conducting a test to establish brain death, which is an international standard procedure. International human rights lawyer David Metas has been writing and researching on forced organ harvesting in China since 2006. Two studies, first of all, they provide another evidentiary trail which confirms what we already found, that uh, people are being killed through organ extraction and not because of the, and the organs aren't being extracted uh, because they're brain dead. The most recent study showed that a significant proportion of organs used for transplant in China continues to be obtained illegally outside of the official registry system, even after 2015. That's the year when Chinese officials claimed to have stopped using organs from prisoners. The topic of transplant abuse in China appears to be, even in the medical community, not well known. How does Metis explain that? When we did our first press conference on this in 2006, I said it's a new form of evil on the planet. And, and people are used to hearing about other forms of mass killing, and, and uh, so it's easier to believe uh, a repetition of something that's happened in the past. I mean, one of the uh, questions I would ask people uh, who say, you know, convince me, quickly, uh, I would say to them, uh, what would we know about the Holocaust today if, if the Nazis, the Axis powers instead of the Allied powers of one World War II? Probably very little. Uh, the, uh, and, and that's the situation. I mean, uh, obviously China doesn't control the whole world, but it, it controls the sources, the information, and it's not transparent. But uh, if, if you're at all skeptical, just read the evidence. One of Metis's messages in his decades of work on behalf of human rights has been that we ignore human rights violations, including those far away at our own peril. Violations tend to spread, and when we become the victims, it's already too late. He says forced organ harvesting in China illustrates this, as it's been used to target different groups, including the spiritual group Falun Gong, as well as the Uyghurs, and the scale of its use has grown. There's been, uh, you know, since uh, the early 2000s, in the massive sourcing of organs from uh, Falun Gong, a depletion uh, of the uh, Falun Gong population in detention because the, the, the numbers of Falun Gong detained over the years wasn't replenishing the number of people who were being killed through organ extraction. The organs of Uyghurs in Xinjiang isn't just supplying the transplant pop population in Xinjiang, it's... It, it, it's, it's, it's 
supplying the transplant population uh, throughout China and, of course, throughout the world because there's a lot of transplant tourists. Uh, and so that's a very specific example of, of a spreading human rights violation. But there's also places like through the Belt and Road um, Initiative where this Chinese uh, culture of organ transplant abuse is spreading, and, and we're seeing it in places in Thailand and Cambodia now. The UK Parliament in March banned organ tourism. An amendment to the new Health and Care Bill criminalizes any UK resident who travels abroad to purchase an organ, including to China. Mehdas says that's not enough. He says the UK needs to set up a compulsory reporting system to make the law effective, or we won't know how many UK citizens go to China for organs. The problem of, of actually getting the data, I mean, it's, it's, it's very nice to say we're going to prosecute people who are involved in trans, uh, tra transplant abuse abroad, but how do you know? Uh, the, there's no uh, controls. If you're a UK person and you want to leave the UK, you don't have to report to anybody about where you're going or why you're going. Uh, uh, and, and when you come back, if you're a UK citizen, they just let you in. So how are they going to even know that you went to China for a transplant unless they set up a system of reporting? He says it's not just organ tourists who are complicit in this crime against humanity. There's a lot of uh, Western countries where there's transplant tourists going into China, where there's uh, cooperation between Chinese uh, transplant institutions and uh, Western uh, transplant institutions, where uh, there, there's training of Chinese transplant professionals uh, in the West, where there's exportation of uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, anti-rejection drugs from uh, the West uh, 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 in, into China. Meta says the UK and other Western countries can and need to do a lot more to confront the problem. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. And staying in the UK, it's less than two weeks before Boris Johnson's successor enters office on September 6th. The latest debate saw the cost of living crisis dominating the conversation. NTD's Malcolm Hudson brings us this report. The latest leadership hustings in Birmingham saw Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss lay out starkly contrasting economic visions. Sunak said that millions in the UK could face destitution without further support this winter, criticising Truss's tax-cutting plans. While Truss said she always opposed the national insurance tax hike, condemning what she called the high-tax economy of the previous years. My first priority is reducing taxes because what I don't believe is taking money from people in taxes and then giving it back to them in benefits. That is Gordon Brown economics, and frankly, it hasn't worked. Truss went on to give the example of Britain cutting corporation tax in the past, which then attracted more revenue into the Treasury and saw more growth in the economy. Sunak has criticised her tax-cutting policy, but she rejected this. this. This whole language, John, of unfunded tax cuts implies the static model, the so-called abacus economics that the Treasury orthodoxy has promoted for years. But it hasn't worked for our economy because what we've ended up with is high tax, high spending and low growth. Meanwhile, Sunak defended his own approach, calling Truss's policy a gamble with people's finances. A tax cut that she's proposing for someone on her salary is worth about £1,700, right? That's pretty hefty. For someone working very hard on the national living wage, that tax cut is worth barely a pound a week. For a pensioner who's not working, and there are millions of those who are very anxious about the winter, that tax cut is worth precisely zero. Sunak said Truss's economic plans would pour fuel on the fire of inflation. He said if he's prime minister, he would not let that happen. The former chancellor acknowledged he is the underdog in the race, but insisted he is still in the contest. Sunak said it was important the public had the chance to debate the very clear difference between the two candidates' approaches. Taking a step back from economics, Sunak promised to do more to oppose Scottish nationalism with, as he said, an argument that would speak to people's hearts. And Truss said she will allow new grammar schools, saying we need to let good schools expand and set up new branches. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. Coming up, a California senior earned $3.5 million in scholarships for his hard work in school. He intends to give back to the community he grew up in. Stay tuned for his story after this short break.
new school year has begun and a senior from South Los Angeles is happy to start college at UC Berkeley with the millions of dollars in scholarships he earned. NTD's Jackie Rios spoke with this young man. For 18-year-old Jaden Hunter, his dedication and focus on his education has paid off. He graduated as co-valedictorian from Crenshaw Tech Charter High, and his hard work in school has earned him $3.5 million in scholarships. Hunter doesn't regret the choices he had to make in order to achieve his academic goals. I made a lot of sacrifices, and I wouldn't take any of them back. Um, whether that was me not being able to go have fun with my friends because I had to do this assignment or do this or I couldn't go out to eat with my family for my cousin's birthday or something like that because I was focused on work. Those sacrifices paid off as Hunter was accepted to 39 universities and received the Gates Scholarship from the Melinda Gates Foundation. The scholarship pays for everything from room and board and can be used in any university the recipient is accepted to. It's still, sometimes I feel like it hasn't hit me yet. I don't realize how, like, it's like a blessing early, like, it literally is. Like, um, out of 37,000 kids, only 300 kids are selected. That's less than 1% of the kids. What kept Jaden going was his own motivation to make it out of South LA and support from friends and family, especially his mother and grandma. One mentor was one of his English teachers. My English teacher, her name was Miss Pate. She inspired me because I've never opened up to anyone like in my entire life. And that was the only teacher I opened up to. And she always made sure that I was okay like going through my high school career. Hunter said although he originally wanted to study at USC, he later changed his mind as he wanted to challenge himself and be away from home, but not too far from family. He is now heading off to UC Berkeley. He says he would like to become a mechanical engineer and work for SpaceX, NASA, or Tesla. But his ultimate goal is to come back to his community in South LA and give back to the community he grew up in. Jackie Rios, NTD News, Los Angeles. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.